Good morning. What a wonderful way to begin a worship gathering, hearing a believer give their testimony and then enter the waters of baptism. Isn't that a great reminder? Shouldn't we go back early and often to when God first scooped us from sin and put us on the Son, Jesus Christ, the rock as our Savior? Where would you be had that not happened? Where would you be going had that not happened? So thank you. I'm not sure where that uh, woman is, but thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm really grateful to JJ for sharing the pulpit with me this morning. I promise you what I preached on. Some of you already asked about it because you saw the title. I promise you I got pre-JJ approval. In fact, he asked me, so if any emails should come out of this message, you have his email address, right? Listen, I'm going to be reading uh, the text throughout the course of this message. I want to pray, and then you can sit down. Father, thank you for your incredible love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for those powerful words it is finished we thank you for the irrefutable bodily resurrection of king jesus that he is ruling and reigning right now and as believers lord we would confess that sometimes we often have quite compartmentalized christian lives places that have not yet been surrendered to you and so lord i pray that um the king ship of Jesus would be extended more and more over our lives, even in this um, important topic that you have before us from Proverbs 5 this morning. I pray that there would be no one here left in condemnation, but Lord, led out of condemnation, should they be in it right now. We thank you that this man receives sinners, they said of Jesus. So I ask now that these moments in your word would be eye-opening, life-changing, and heart satisfying in you because you are a good and great and glorious king and we give you praise in jesus name amen all right you can grab a seat and if you like open up to proverbs chapter 5 proverbs chapter 5 fire fire is both a great gift but also potentially a destructive force. It's all about where fire is. Fire, in a fireplace, well, there's warmth, there's light, there's ambiance, all that good stuff. But outside a fireplace, that fire can burn your house down and even burn you to the ground. Well, sex is a lot like fire. In the fireplace of Marriage between one man and one woman, sex is a great gift. But outside that fireplace, in every other form, it is entirely destructive. And so I might as well cut to the chase and let you know what you already know. I'll be preaching to you this morning on sex and fire. And I'm going to do so from Proverbs chapter 5, one of the most straightforward passages on this topic in all of scripture i like what ray ortland said about proverbs 5 the message of proverbs 5 is keep your fire in your fireplace 
and then stoke it as hot as you can there. So this is not going to be salacious. The most salacious thing we'll read is actually verse 23 itself. You'll see when we get there. But it is a needful message for today. And before we dive in and just walk the text in some general terms, I want to give you five, um, sort of five, you might say, preliminary observations. Observation number one. There are people who say that whoever wrote the Bible, we know that God inspired people to write the Bible, but whoever wrote the Bible, people will sometimes say, or God himself is quite prudish. Now, people who come with that kind of mentality or sentiment display the fact that they've never read one book, namely the Scripture itself. Again, wait till we get to verse 23. Or how about Song of Solomon? No, God cares about this gift, and he tells us how to use this gift. There's nothing prudish about God. Number two, as the church speaks plainly on the sin and perversion of homosexuality, and we should, because the world is trying to indoctrinate us, starting with our kids, the church should speak just as plainly on the sin of every form of sexual activity outside of that between one man and one woman in that holy fireplace. In fact, I would venture to say that heterosexual sin is sending more people to hell than homosexual sin. Number three, given how sexually saturated, it is so quiet in here right now, it seems like it's more quiet than usual. Given how sexually saturated culture is, this passage is particularly needful. We live in a pervasively fallen sexual ethos-ridden culture. I mean, you can drive almost anywhere, and what are you going to see but a billboard with um, some airbrushed, really non-existent Victoria's Secret models? It's everywhere in front of you. Did you know that in 1994, that's 28 years ago, there were about 20,000 simulated or suggested uh, sex acts on TV? There was three channels at the time. I'm dating myself, NBC, CBS, and... ABC. Now, nearly three decades later, it is probably that much a day just on all the cable channels. Did you know that every second, so tick, over $3,000 is spent on pornography? And pornography is ubiquitous. In other words, it's everywhere. It used to be if somebody wanted to lay hold of some pornographic material, they had to go to a, a market or something like that and sheepishly point to a magazine wrapped in brown paper and plastic behind the counter and pay their money and scurry away. It's not like that. It is absolutely everywhere, which is, by the way, parents, a reason why we should be very careful about these things called smartphones, which maybe ain't so smart. Over half the men who are alive right now will look at pornography. And it's not just a man's thing. Over one-third of women alive will look at pornography. 85% of men will have premarital relations before they get married. And you might say, well, has all this sexual liberation made marriage better? No. One-fourth of men will commit adultery some point in their marriage, 15% of women. So, so I think this text, this ancient text, is needful for today. Fourth of all, I am I'm keenly aware that there would be people under the sound of my voice right now 
whose lives at some point have been shattered by adultery or sexual immorality. I, I don't know who you are. I, I knew it restore when I preached this message last Sunday. But I don't know. But, but I, I'm aware that that just has to be the case. And my heart breaks for you. My heart goes out to you. And, and all I can say is I think even this passage can, can provide a gateway to healing for you. I, I really can, as strong as it is. And maybe there's children here. You grew up in the context where you had a parent that maybe stepped out on, 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 on your other parent. I think this text can give you some understanding about the dynamics behind that. And so you don't repeat that because so often that's repeated. Wherever you are, I think this passage can provide ultimately a lot of hope. And then the fifth preliminary observation, and we will finally jump into this text, is this. It is mildly, to understate the point, ironic that the guy who wrote this passage under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon, would ultimately have 700 wives and 300 concubines. 1 Kings 11. Somebody says, well, that nullifies what he says. No, no, no. Actually, Far from nullifying it, his life actually ratifies it because it ended quite sadly because it didn't even follow his own teaching. And there's also an upside to that because a lot of us failed in this category in our lives. I know up until I was 26, I, I embraced uh, the world's narrative on what manhood was all about. Enough said. I failed in the past on this, but that doesn't somehow negate my responsibility to speak the truth to my own family and to those that I minister to. The truth is always the truth. And so whether or not Solomon followed it, it is the truth. And this is God's good word for us today. Y'all with me? All right, so this kind of three big movements from the text. First of all, we're going to look at a father's urgent warning. A father's urgent warning. And basically what he's going to say in verses 1 through 3 is, Son, you got to watch out. You're going to be tempted by the, quote, forbidden woman. Let me read verses 1 through 3. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. To, to my understanding, incline your ear. He says it all through the book of Proverbs. Listen to me, son. Listen to me, son. That you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge for or because specifically the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. He's saying, son, you got to watch out. You're going to be tempted by the forbidden woman. Now, people wrestle with the, the expression forbidden woman. What is, what is that in Hebrew? In the Hebrew, it's simply the word strange woman. You may have it translated that way in a copy of Scripture on your lap. It could be, it's sometimes it's tempted, uh, or rather translated temptress, um, seductress, adulteress, that kind of thing. It's really not that deep, though. Who's the forbidden woman? It's any woman to whom you're not married who's coming on to you. It's that simple. Again, it's so quiet right now. Now, let me take up just a hypothetical check that somebody might have in their spirit right now. It would go like this. Wait, 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 wait. This is unfair. The Bible's clearly sexist. I mean, why is he singling out women? Why is, why is he blame, seeming to blame women when, when, when men are just as bad as women? Anybody have that thought going through their head right now? And now restore people say, oh yeah, that was me. I'm thinking that. So somebody here maybe. Now how would I answer that? I'd say first, and, first of all, you're right on the fact that both men and women 
are equally bad. The Bible never says all men are bad or all men are fill in the blank or all women are fill in the blank. And neither should we. You know how people do the world will say all men this or all women that? Instead, the Bible just gives us the real deal. All of us have been infected by sin. We're all made in the image of God, so intrinsically valuable. We're also all depraved by the fall. So I'd answer it that way, and then I would add this. Certainly, the divine, the intention of the divine author is that we then expand the application and say, okay, what about the forbidden man or the seductive man, right? Like, we can flip it and apply it that way. Then I would add this. There is no single passage in Scripture that can absolutely say everything about everything, right? Of course he's talking about women. Who's he talking to? His son. So of course he's going to be talking about women in that sense. I would add, in fact, that in chapter 1, verses 10 through 19, he warns him about his male friends. Is he being sexist there? No. He's addressing a specific, a specific context. And further, when the son sort of halfway in this text comes to his senses, he doesn't say, well, it was the woman's fault. No, he blames himself as he should for not listening to the counsel of his father. What is more, he is not portrayed, this son, men and women by application, as some innocent chump, but as a potentially hell-bound fool. And then I would add this. This son's mother adds in the warning of her husband in the next few chapters about the strange woman. Is she being sexist? No, she's being a realist. So, so let me just end this little um, caveat by saying this passage is not saying all women are godless seducers, okay? Nor is it saying all young men are uncontrollably lustful or if, if, if something happens, it was, they're totally innocent victims. It's not saying that. Y'all with me? Now back into the text, let's check out her tactics, this strange woman. If you were to go to chapter 7, which kind of goes with chapter 5, first of all, there is the tactic of her looks. It says in chapter 7 that she dresses as a prostitute. doesn't say she is a prostitute. She dresses as one. Now, I'm more interested in being biblically, biblically correct than politically correct. There are ways a young woman or an older woman or a young man or older man can dress that's saying, hey, look at me, right? Isn't that just common sense? Now, that never, ever, 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 ever goes without saying gives anyone the right then to do something wrong or improper, right? There's never an excuse for that, but it is what it is. He says she has a tactic which she says, look at me. She wants to appear sexually attractive. She also takes the initiative according to chapter 7. She seizes him, and she kisses him, verse 13, chapter 7. And then she puts on blast her availability. She's, she says, come on, lie with me. Uh, my, my husband's not going to be home until the next moon. I've, I've uh, seasoned my bed with, with myrrh and aloes and spice. She's putting on blast her availability. But chapter 7 mentions the tactic that chapter 5 dials in all, almost exclusively with tunnel vision. It says she seduces him, not ultimately first through the eyes, but through the ears, through seductive speech. Now look at verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. You might think that's kind of 
uh, emphasizing the sensual part of it, but it's, it's really talking about her words because Hebrew parallelism fills it out. It goes on to say her speech is smoother than oil. Seductive speech is what she uses to try and seduce people into sexual sin with her. Now, this seems so innocent at first. It could be the woman, the next cubicle over, who always laughs at your jokes. Now, don't get carried away. Keep telling jokes. But you know, you get to get what I'm saying, right? Or, or how about this? Um, the, the old boyfriend, and he wasn't always my boyfriend. Sometimes he was just my friend, whose interaction on Facebook makes me feel better about myself. Or how about this? The woman at the gym who just seems to understand you better than your wife. Then, when something happens inside somebody's heart, instead of saying, whoa, I need to watch this, there's a bit of justifying that can happen. If my husband would talk to me and listen to me, I wouldn't have to talk to him so much. If my wife would only give me compliments like that woman, I wouldn't her compliments wouldn't mean anything to me. That's how it works. And I like what Danny Aiken says. If those things are going on between your ears, you ought to hear the theme song of Jaws playing in the background. Because, baby, you about to go down. Here, according to verses 4 and 5, is what this momentary pleasure will bring you. Verse 4. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. It leads to death. Now, I, most of us have probably seen one of those movie scenes. It's, it's been duplicated in probably tons of movies where, where this guy is making out with a beautiful woman. And then, like, boom, what happens to that woman, like, in, in a nanosecond? I'm the only one that's seen those movies. She turns into like an old lady, a zombie with putrefying flesh and maggots and serpents coming out of her eyes. Like, anybody seen that? Come on. That's what's being communicated here. May look good on the front end, but it leads to death, man. It leads to death. Unrepentant, persistent sexual sin leads to eternal death. Romans 6.23, Romans 6.23 stuff. For the wages of sin is death. Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, both say don't be deceived because we deceive ourselves. Well, I've prayed the prayer. God knows my heart. I don't think you want to use that one. Um, I've prayed the prayer. It says don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor homosexuals, nor those who commit adultery will inherit the kingdom of God. I remember early on in our days of planning Restored Church, there was a, there was a I'll just say a person on uh, one of our music worship teams came out that he was being sex sexually immoral. I talked to him, and he just seemed so devastated, so broken, and so crushed, you know, so I'm not going to really hammer him. I'm just going to try and encourage him, okay? I want you to step off the worship team. No, no, not step off. Just step back for a season. Let's, let's get you strengthened and healed and restored and all that, and you can continue. And I just gave him a number of things to do. Like, we're going to meet for counseling. I want you still to be here for gathered worship. And he didn't do any of those things. 
So finally, I was going on a long trip with my family. He did come to like the last five minutes of a service, and I pulled him out back. I said, hey, hey, brother. If you don't turn, because he kept on doing what he was doing, if you don't turn from this, you're going to hell. Well, of course, all he told people was, my counseling consisted of Pastor Mike saying, I'm going to hell. There was a lot more to it. So when you hear something about something your pastor did or did not say, remember, he that answers a matter before he hears it, to him it is falling in shame. There's a whole lot more. But I do stand with that. If someone doesn't turn from their sin, they are not part of God's people. That's how serious it is. And then he loves us enough, Solomon does, God through Solomon, to let us know not only will it eternally hurt, but he tells us about the pain it will cause along the way that hopefully will be speed bumps that cause you to go the other way. Look at this. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, you got to listen. Verse 7, son, you got to listen to me. Sons, now, O oh sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house because it will cost you. Cost you, number one, it will cost you wealth. Verse 9, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. It will cost you. Sexual immorality costs lawsuits, alimony, paying off his attorney, her attorney, and then child support, which should be paid. It will also cost you potentially your health. Verse 11, at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. This is physical stuff. I don't think I'm being inappropriate to talk about, hey, listen, we, we know that there's things that people can get, right? Some of them that are deathly, right? And even if you don't contract an STD, there is a toll physically that kind of lifestyle lays on people. I don't think you need me to tell you that. You can think of illustrations yourself, I'm sure, in your sphere of life. And then it will cost you your reputation. Verse 14, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Like, I've lost my reputation before my brothers and sisters in Christ. But as I shared to restore last week, the thing that, 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 that would get me the most is, is really not what you guys would think of me, honestly, what my kids would think of me. My kids, right? Well, my own children, I couldn't be faithful to their mother or you couldn't be faithful to their father. He says that'll be lost. And then perhaps the worst one of all is this, the regret. Verse 12, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. Like, hey, brother, hey, sister, watch it. Nah, I'm fine. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. If only. Now, God's grace can, can, can deal with all that, but there is the bitterness of regret. If only I had listened. And outside of any of that leading to repentance, as I just pointed out, it is eternal death. So let me end the first point with a few exhortations. If you're married and you're looking at porn or you are on your way to an affair or having an affair, there's still now time to repent. The Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And as bad as it could be, and it might be bad, 
There's the blood of the one who gave his life for all kinds of sinners, including sexual sinners. It may be very hard to walk through, yeah, but you got Christ and you have a church family to bring you back to health. So if that's you, I would say own your sin and fly right to the cross. Fly to Christ. Go, go, now! He'll forgive you. You'll have to walk through some stuff. But I know firsthand of glorious stories of restoration. God can do it. Now, if you're a single, and if you're shacking up, or if you're doing stuff that technically is not intercourse, but you know it's still sexual in nature, if you're looking at porn, there is likewise still time for you to repent. God is good. Remember when Jesus talked to that woman who'd had a slew of husbands and the guy she was now shacking up with wasn't her husband? He was able to redeem and forgive her. He can do the same thing. Now listen, you may be a promiscuous person living in a very promiscuous culture. That's what we are. First Corinthians talks about that, right? He says, again, don't be deceived. A certain group of people, and he talks about all kinds of sinners, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Unrepentant sinners in sexual areas and other areas. But then he says, but such were some of you. Were. Past tense, baby. That's who you were. That's not you anymore. But you were, you were justified. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That could be you. That could be you. You say, but it would cost so much to get right. Have you ever considered what it would cost not to get right? So why don't you run to the one who paid the ultimate cost so he could get you right? Now, I close this first point with this. Who is warning his son right here in this text? Who's warning the son? The father. So fathers, this, this, this reminds us that we may need to have some awkward conversations with our kids, Right? And not just our sons, but I think our daughters as well, obviously, appropriately. And we need to do what the father does with his son here. He gives them a glimpse of the future. Of if, they, if you go this way, this is what it's going to look like. That's not fear-mongering. That's just fathering. He's fathering right here. And you know what? Your child may not listen to you. They may not listen to you as they get older. Or may, they may go a certain direction, but then remember in a key moment what you told them. I read a statistic, apparently there was some study that unearthed some of this, that the cardinal factor among children who, who decide not to go that way, or maybe who did for a season but turned back, was they had a father in their life who lovingly kept it real. Fathers, you got to keep it real. Now, this is where a lot of Christians stop. And this is where it might get a little bit awkward. You say, it's already been awkward. Well, okay. Here's awkward point two. The resounding message here is not don't. It ultimately is do in the fireplace of marriage. You could look at verses 1 through 14 this way. Keep your hands off other women. Verses 15 through 20. Appropriately, keep your hands on your wife. One commentator said, before Hugh Hefner messed it up, God brought it up. And I'd say it was long before Hugh Hefner, it was messed up, but you get the point. We're going to read verses 15 through 17. 
I'm going to keep this very general, and I'm just going to say, uh, let me, how, how, how do I put it in my notes so I don't go off, <laughs> off top here? Um, water is a euphemism for sexual intimacy and pleasure. That's plain enough, right? Water is a euphemism for sexual pleasure and intimacy. This is what he says, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Now, I want, I want you to notice what he's saying. What he's not saying, actually, first. He's not saying, if you got to have sexual relations, if you have to have some fire burning, at least, for crying out loud, have it burn in your own fireplace. He's not saying it reactively and defensively and negatively. He's actually saying it positively. He's not saying it all like that. He is saying quite positively, hey, hey, drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. He's saying it in a positive, proactive way. What is he saying? He is saying, husbands, sleep with your wife. Wife, sleep with your husband. And he goes on to say in verse 18, let your, again, keeping this general, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. He is not saying there, hey, listen, you know, when you guys are both young, you know, enjoy each other. He's not saying that. He's saying, hey, man, you need to find the same pleasure you did in now you did in her when she was young because you're aging too, chump. You're both aging. But you're to look at her as a lovely doe and a graceful deer all the years of your life. One commentator put it this way. Always cherish her and rejoice over her as that dear girl who gave herself completely to you alone all those years ago. That's really sweet, isn't it? Now, I, th I think so. Maybe all of you would disagree, but I think it's sweet. All right. 19b. This is the part that, uh, yeah, I'll just read it because it's God's sacred word. It says, Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Um, what he's saying there, it's not just okay for a man to take pleasure in, his, in that way in his wife or a wife to take pleasure in her husband by extension. It's actually holy. <laughs> One commentator said you can imagine God lifting holy hands over the marital bed, which is what it says in Hebrews 12. The marriage bed is pure and undefiled. It is a gift from God. A great gift is fire when it is stoked in the fireplace. And he is saying, man, you need to soak it hot. Ray Ortland said, quote, when you get married, drop your inhibitions and go for it in both quantity and quality. There's some elbowing going on right now, I can sense. So where, do you, where did he get the quality from? Well, let's again look at this verse. Let her breasts fill you. The word delight. The word intoxicated. Do you see that? That's the quality. Where's the quantity? Where do you see that there? You can say it, somebody. I say, not me, not in this message. Okay. At all times, always in her love. I think Ortland said, make it fun and make it frequent. Verse 19, Proverbs 5. 
Now, verse 20, he asks a question. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? And instead of letting her breast fill you at all times with delight, why should you embrace the bosom of an adulteress? What is the reason you should do that according to this verse? What is the reason you should do that? There is no reason. He said, you can't. Don't. Instead, go back up to verse 19. Don't be intoxicated with a strange woman or strange man. Be intoxicated with your spouse. Staying intoxicated at home is very helpful to not getting intoxicated outside the home. Now, here's a second check in the spirit that maybe somebody here would have. Wait, 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 somebody thinks. Are you saying that we should have sex so that he doesn't cheat or she doesn't cheat? No, I'm not saying that's the only reason to have sexual intimacy. The Bible gives lots of reasons. First of all, there's procreation. Yes, there is pleasure. Yes, there's a picture of unity and there's bonding. The second thing I would say is the Bible never, ever, ever says sexlessness in marriage or a sexless season in marriage ever justifies unfaithfulness outside the marriage. Never, ever. The Bible never says, listen, if he won't sleep with you, if she won't sleep with you, go elsewhere. Not one time. Okay, we clear? But third of all, the Bible does clearly tell us that having sex helps with the fight for faithfulness. Tremper Longman's quote said, the best defense against committing adultery in marriage is a strong offense in marriage. Now, I, I would adjust it. I think Christ is the best defense. But there is wisdom there. What does 1 Corinthians 7.15 say but this? He says, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, a promiscuous culture, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When sex is used as a weapon in marriage, you're inviting the world and the enemy to use sex as a weapon of temptation against you. Don't do that. That's not right. That's not good. Now, here's a crazy story. You may have heard it before. When you think of Puritan America, what do you think of? You think of people being puritanical, like they, they didn't enjoy anything, which the Puritans get a bad rap, big time. But there is actually a case uh, on the books of a woman whose husband was church disciplined because he was neglecting the marriage bed. Can you imagine hey church we're having a family business meeting we gotta do some church discipline stuff and somebody comes up because of that crickets 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 it happened the point is this here he's saying get intoxicated with your wife or by extension get intoxicated with your husband so that you're not tempted to get intoxicated somewhere else that's pretty clear right right so what do you do to get intoxicated? What do you have to do to get intoxicated? Again, this is not too deep. You're looking at me up here, okay? What do you got to do to get intoxicated? You got to drink. So following the metaphors here, what do you got to do to get intoxicated? You got to drink, right? That's the word used euphemistically of sex in verse 15. You have to drink. You got to let the fire burn in the fireplace 
You got to stoke it as hot as you can, as Ortland said. Perhaps a newly married couple here would say, or a couple engaged, yeah, that's right. Duh, no doubt. But, but life and mortgages and difficulties and kids and health and difficulties and busyness and busyness and busyness keep on going can all make having regular sexual intimacy with your spouse more of a challenge. And that's where there must be both planning and initiative in that area. Enough said. I would say, be intentional about stoking that fire in every season of your marriage. You will suffer for not doing so. You'll be blessed for intentionally doing so. I would add this, that each person in a marriage relationship does bring his or own her own experiences, right? And insecurities, and backgrounds and struggles and all the rest. Maybe, maybe one or both was taught more of a negative view of sex. The don't, but never really the do. And so they're carrying some baggage. I need to let go around that fact. Maybe one or both experienced abuse in the past. Or maybe there's guilt for past sexual activity, perhaps even as a single, perhaps even with the one to whom you're, not mar- you're now married. That all of that or some of that can rear its ugly head in marriage. People here would testify to that. And when that happens, it should be handled with a whole lot of patience and grace and sensitivity and communication. But we need to remember there is a real enemy who wants as many non-married people to have as much sex as possible in order to lay up toxins and guilt and shame and all the rest for as many married people to have the least amount of sex as possible. Fight for not letting the former cause the latter. Well, verses 1 through 14, stay away from the arms of a strange woman. Verses 15 through 20, run into the arms of your wife, your husband. Stay out of harm's way, enjoy your spouse. And he ends with this, verses 21 through 23, make your choice. Determine how you're going to walk this out. The father is done now with the sex and fire talk with his son, awkward talk, and he's bringing it to a conclusion. And he calls for a decision, and he gives the ultimate motivation, which in the end is not how it affects us, but what it says about God. Look what he says in verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The ultimate motivation is Coram Deo. We are always before the face of God. We are never, ever not before the face of God. There's no such thing as a secret click on a mouse pad before the face of God. There's no such thing as a secret look, a quick gaze before the face of God. There's no such thing as a secret affair before the face of God. God sees it all. God is everywhere, omnipresent, omniscient. And then he brings it right back down real quick and he talks about the cost it will exact on you as you live before your own face and not the face of the living God. Verse 22, 
The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So, he was calling him to make a decision. What kind of decision do you need to make this morning? Because you know this wasn't just about married people, right? It wasn't. It was focusing on that, but it was just hitting our, our, our God-given human sexuality. As a single, what does that look like? You walk in purity, all right? And if you've, if you've, if you've steered into the ditch, get it right with God. Don't stay there. That, you know, people say, well, I've already, I've already, so I might as well. No, that's not how it works. It's like saying, you know, I already swallowed poison. Might as well just keep swallowing poison. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Jesus is quick to forgive. And I'm sure there's some people here, you're crossing the line. As a married, what does that mean? Maybe there's some things you got to get. In fact, I had four G's that kind of wrap this up. Four, four, four places you need to go. Three places you need to go and then something you need to do with your heart. First of all, go to Christ. Go to Christ. This man receives sinners. I have mentioned twice already in part, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. I'd like to read the entire passage right now. Just three verses. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I don't think you need no Greek for that, right? And such, these are the greatest words ever, such were some of you. Praise God for that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul was writing a church, and some of them were, were kind of going back and wilding out a little bit. Didn't mean they weren't believers, but how they responded to his admonition showed whether or not they were really believers. Believers sin, right? We sin. But how do you respond to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit through the power of God's Word right now? You need to run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Run to, let, whatever you're doing, don't let it go any further. Don't let it go any further. Because you guys know the ranks of churches are peppered with heartbreak stories. And maybe something like this could stop it from growing even more. Amen? And then, even if there's nothing going down, you got to keep on running to Jesus because Jesus, as the song we just sang made clear, is the ultimate satisfier of our souls in marriage and in singleness. In times when you're married, when maybe your spouse ain't feeling it, even your dog doesn't like you, just barking at you, okay? Even then, you can go to Psalm 73. Who do I have in heaven but you? And beside you, there's nothing I desire on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. They will fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Go to Christ. And then, maybe you need to go to your spouse. Have that conversation. Maybe there's some things to confess. Things to get right. The pain you experience now will be a whole lot less than the pain you would experience later if you don't do that. So do that. And maybe there's nothing to get right, but you just need to communicate 
in these areas because these can be difficult things to talk about for sure. Third of all, I would say you got to go to others. Every man, every woman needs to have a group of men, a group of women, small group, that you can appropriately and judiciously share stuff with. Accountability to keep, just to keep you accountable. We all need that. The enemy wants us to operate in a silent silo and destroy us. No, there's power in walking with other brothers. Power in walking with other sisters. And then finally, this flows right out of Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do in life flows out of your heart, including how you walk out your God-given human sexuality. This is the word of God. Father, thank you for the privilege of walking through this text, Lord. I pray that it was helpful and appropriate, but sufficiently clear for us to understand what you're saying and to walk it out. I pray for the person right now whose heart is in their socks because they know they've not been walking in the light. And God, that you would compel them with your mercy and your love to talk to somebody, talk to their spouse, talk to an elder here. Um, and it might be hard, but you're a God who restores. You're a God who forgives and all that. I pray for people who maybe are flirting with that line. Flirt, they're not being careful with the talk or their their eyes, their heart, most of all. That's where it all comes from, God, that this would be like a stop sign, like stop. And I pray for those who are, are walking in the truth, that, Lord, um, this would cause them just to double down and walk in your way, not to walk um, uh, anxious, but to walk with the fear of the Lord, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. God, thank you that you are the ultimate lover of our souls in sending your son to make us the bride of Christ. And we give you praise in his awesome, holy, life-giving, life-changing name. Amen.